Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this, this is our last episode of Njal's Saga. Hang on, we can't do that yet. Wait now, it's been eight months. I think we've earned a little bit of celebration. No, 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 no. Yeah, I know, but we're not done yet. This is the last episode, but we're just starting it. I mean, okay, we're, maybe we're not done done, but we're we're going to be done. This is the beginning of that. But we also have a Judgments episode to cover after this. Uh, okay, fine. Go ahead, ruin my fun. I mean, can I have a little joy in my life? Yeah, just not an entire ode to it. <laughs> so, uh, check this out, Andy. This saga summary goes up to 11. Right. You know, most podcasters would only summarize up to 10. Would they? That's right. But what we do, when we need that extra little push off the cliff, you know what we do? We go to 11. 11, exactly. Nope. One longer. Why didn't we just make 10 longer and make 10 be the top number and, and then make a little make that a little longer? This goes to 11. <laughs> well done. I hope everybody gets that. <laughs> I see you smelled what I was cooking there. Oh, I know exactly what you're cooking. I love that. <laughs> I mean, it's really the one of the only options for uh, for 11, isn't it? But uh, point. this is 11 episodes. I mean, good Lord, John. <laughs> <laughs> We've done as many episodes of Nyal as there are time-space dimensions in the theoretical unified super string theorem. <laughs> All right, that was the other obvious reference for 11. <laughs> <laughs> right? Super string theory, right out of the box like that. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, 11 is also the number of the Apollo mission that put humans on the moon for the very first time. That's right, and just like them, we're breaking barriers here at Saga Thing. Oh, that's a claim. Uh, sure, if you count 11 episodes of summarizing Yal Saga as barrier breaking. It's at least like a, a transgression of sorts. <laughs> Speaking of transgressions, 11, one for each non-treasonous apostle at the Last Supper. Hmm. Now, I've always considered James, son of Alpheus, to be a bit less than a full apostle. You get it? Oh, <laughs> I, I see what you're doing there. I wish I didn't, but I do. It doesn't matter, though. I think uh, James, son of Zebedee, more than makes up for the lesser James. There you go. Now, for those uh, not in the know, James, son of Zebedee, is known as James the Greater. <laughs> so he more than makes up for uh, his lesser counterpart? Yes. Whew, that might be the worst joke we've done on Saga Thing. Yeah, and then we went ahead and explained it. It's, uh, <laughs> That's right. Line, it's, like, it's like dissecting a frog. Yeah. No one enjoys it and the frog dies. Always a good uh, mark of a joke when you have to explain right. what it means. That's right. Well, it may have been bad, but how many chances are we going to get to make a St. James the lesser joke on this podcast? Yeah. That joke may have had people LOLing back in the first century, but uh, to me it feels a bit dated now. <laughs> no, I hardly think a podcast devoted to 13th century Icelandic literature should worry too much about what's dated. Well, that's a fair point. But uh, in the interest of modernizing, how about this? This episode is nominally kin to the enigmatic tween with a numeric name from Netflix's Stranger Things. Oh, good job there. Definitely not a reference that's going to be dated in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this episode is brought to you by Epimetheus, uh, also known as Saturn Eleven. Now, yeah, in full disclosure, we did consider Sinope the 11th largest moon of Jupiter, but uh, Epimetheus came at us with a stronger proposal. Well done, Epimetheus. Yes. And of course, 11 is the number of Armistice Day, the cessation of hostilities to conclude World War I. Now, that has the feel of a segue. Also, mm. I think we're out of 11s. Yes, well, it fits as a segue. Uh, this episode begins with a brokered piece from the end of the battle at the All Thing, but it is a fragile piece, and everyone's pretty sure that the war isn't quite over yet. Well, they're right. Uh, <laughs> but first, let's remind everyone of what happened last time. Uh, crank up the gramophone, would you? All right. All right. 
Last time on Njal Saga. Kari, sole survivor of the burning of Njal's family in their farmhouse, was grieving for the loss of his young son, Thord, as well as his brothers and parents-in-law. With his friends, he set about building a team of allies to press the lawsuits against the burners. But when his preferred lawyer, Thorhall Asgrimson, was 86th with an infected leg, Kari was forced to cast his lot with the ne'er-do-well Morth Valgudson as his legal champion. With both sides being armed to the teeth, it was far from certain that a peaceful resolution was possible. Morth, with Thorhall's advice, did a passable job of work in court. But Eolf Bulbergson, the lawyer for the burners, had more than a few tricks up his bangled, decorated sleeve. Eventually, he manages to scotch the case on a technicality, and all hope for a peaceful resolution is lost. But fortunately, there's still violent resolution as a fallback. Thorhall Asgrimson rises from his sickbed and starts the killing right there at the All Thing, leading to a full-scale Donnybrook as both sides seek to give the other what for. By the time cooler heads have prevailed, ten of the Burners and their friends have been killed, including the Burners' wily lawyer, Eolf. Snorri the Gothi brokers a settlement which favors Kari's side and includes outlawry for many of the Burners. While most of Kari's allies agree to the deal, Kari and Njal's nephew Thorger Skorager refuse to settle. With that, they ride away from the All Thing to continue their quest for revenge. I just have to uh, paint a bit of a picture for people who are listening to this. We have we both still stick our fingers up to our ear when we're doing those voices, <laughs> and I don't know why. There's no reason to do that, <laughs> but it's true. Um, it's it just feels right. I agree. Uh, so at this point. Kari is uh, low on allies, and he still has a lot of people who need killing. Yes, uh, he's not entirely alone, though. As we said, he's got Thorgeir Skorgeir with him, at least for now. And as we'll mm-hmm. see, he's going to pick up a few more friends along the way. But he is way outnumbered, and his drive to avenge all the people he lost in the burning is going to have to count for a lot. Well, he's already taken down a fair number of them. As we said, ten died in the Battle of the All Thing, and a few others have been killed at other points. But he's still got a lot of men on his kill list. And a few of those have been outlawed now, which is great from a legal perspective, but chasing exiles down is going to make Kari's life a bit harder. If he wants Mm -hmm. to kill all these people, he's only got a short window before they leave the island, and it's going to be a lot harder to kill them once they've left, so... Yeah, well, that's pretty much the plot of this last section of the saga, right? Kari racing against the clock to kill as many men as possible. Uh, Speaking of which... In this episode, we follow Kari Solmundersen on his quest to avenge the burning of Njal and the death of his beloved son, Thor. Hiding where his enemies would least suspect, Kari stalks his prey, waiting for the perfect moment to ambush any Sigvison careless enough to cross his path. In his wake, Kari leaves a trail of blood, bodies, and severed limbs. But in his pursuit of every last burner, Kari is forced to leave Iceland and return to Orkney and the court of his former lord, Earl Sigurd. From there, he'll travel to Wales, to Rome, and then back to Iceland. Along the way, we are swept up in the political intrigue and personal vendettas of 11th century Ireland. An unholy alliance of Vikings, Scots, and Irish has formed in an attempt to overthrow the High King of Ireland, the Great King Brian Baru. On a good Friday, the armies clash at Clontoff in one of Ireland's most famous battles. And with so many against him, will the blessings of God carry King Brian through to win the day? 
Will Flossi fulfill the obligations of his settlement and make his way to Rome at last? And will Kari complete his mission and finish off the last of the burners? Join us now for the thrilling conclusion to... Njal's Saga! Chapters 147 to the end! So, this is the story of Kari's revenge. It's it's more or less a coda to the main action of the saga. Yeah, in some ways it is. Uh, but it's got some fantastic set pieces and action of its own that are really worthy of consideration for Best Bloodshed. Best Bloodshed? What's that? Well, you remember it's a category of judgment we used to do before the podcast became all Njal all the time. Oh, right. I have a vague memory of that, yes. The conclusion of Njal Saga is a bloody spectacle. So if you're a big fan of feud vengeance, well, you're in luck. Oh, yeah. No, this is this is Count of Monte Cristo levels of revenge, just less subtle. Yeah. I think uh, more than anything else, it actually reminds me of the story of uh, Thorsten Dromund. Only a bit longer, but, but I mean, what in Njal Saga isn't a bit bigger than necessary? I mean, just ask poor Hurt, right? Wink, wink. Wackety schmackety do. <laughs> That's quite a line. Uh, for those of you who slacked off and uh, didn't memorize the plot of Greta's saga, uh, first of all, shame. Shame. Uh, Thorstein Dromund was the brother of Greta Esmundersen. Uh, when he learned of Greta's death, he tracked Greta's killer across Europe and finally killed him in Byzantium. And uh, his epilogue, his coda, is a substantial story in and of itself and ended up being an entire episode of the podcast. And it comments on the previous action of the saga, but its abrupt tonal shift was kind of jarring as a conclusion to the previous narrative. Yeah, I, I really like that comparison. I really like that comparison. It's not exactly the same, but there are some definite parallels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it also helps to explain why some scholars have seen this this end of Njal's saga as kind of a tacked on narrative rather than part of the main story. Right, but we put all that to bed several episodes ago. Right, we're both of the single narrative camp. Absolutely. Although I'm definitely willing to concede something's a little bit off with the Klontarf episode. Uh-huh. It's one of the main reasons why some scholars are exasperated by this section. Oh, yeah. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, Judith Jesh calls this a somewhat anticlimactic account in the saga. Well, if that's not a scholarly shrug, I don't know what is. <laughs> right. Uh, but to be fair, I'm taking her a little out of context here. Her her larger point is that this last section is working it's working at a different purpose than the rest of the saga, right? Examining whether mm-hmm. revenge is really the only successful way to end a conflict. And she's hardly alone in that assessment. Yeah, she's really not. Uh, William Ian Miller, who we'll talk about quite a bit in this episode, is a little more forgiving of Kari's revenge sequence. But but even he calls the final chapter of this story a masterclass in how not to end a saga. <laughs> so we're really in for a treat here. Well, at least until we get to the last chapter, I think so. Mm. Uh, and and I think we'll find plenty to talk about as we go along. Sure. We can keep ourselves busy counting dead burners. All right. Let's get to the revenge already. Part 47. Kari and Thorgir against the Sigfasons. Now, when last we left, uh, Kari and Thorgir Skorgir had left the all thing after swearing to never settle with the burners. A rumor had spread that they'd gone north to stay with Gudman the Powerful. Now, this is welcome news to Flossi and the Burners, since they want no part of Kari and Thorgir after what mm-hmm. happened at the Althing. Unfortunately for the Sigfasons, who are the primary targets of Kari's vengeance, Kari and Thorgir didn't go north. No. At the start of Chapter 146, they're actually riding east, across the Markafjot River, toward Seljuslandsmuthi. Okay, now... I'm no expert on Icelandic geography, but I do like to play with maps, and I've spent a lot of time do. hanging out with uh, Emily Lethbridge's uh, Icelandic saga maps, which I'll include mm-hmm. a link to. Um, the Markafjot River 
is nowhere near Eyjafjord where uh, Gudmund lives, way, way up north. No, no, not at all. In fact, I think it's about as south as you can get. Yeah, uh, you might almost come to believe that rumor can't be trusted. No, especially when it comes to Kari's movements. <laughs> it's a lesson the Sigvisons should learn quickly. Ah, but they won't. Well, they may not have that much time. <laughs> uh, now, Kari and Thorger run into a group of women who immediately recognize them. And it's clear they know something about the situation at the Allthing because they chide Kari for riding around so carelessly. Well, how does one ride around carelessly here? Oh, you know, sort of one leg dangling off the horse. <laughs> right. uh, no, but it's not how they're riding. It's a, right. It's that they're riding out in the open. Uh, the women report that they just saw the Sigfusons the night before camping at Rotherfell. Well, now, despite the women's concern, this is actually good news for Kari. Uh, he also learns that the Sigfusons are planning to reach Myrdal by, by evening time. Yeah, these women seem to know an awful lot about the itinerary of the Sigfusons. <laughs> they do, but I think there are two things to consider there. I was thinking about this. On the mm. one hand, it certainly helps to move the plot forward. So that's, sure. you know, rather convenient sure. in that regard. Yeah, it's Chris Farley in Wayne's world, right? Yeah. Uh, now, on the other hand, we, we've got to consider how information travels in Saga Age Iceland. It, it's got to be important to share your whereabouts with others in case someone needs to find you. And mm -hmm. it's perfectly natural, I think, that, that anyone who might run into the Sigfusons would have learned their itinerary that way. Yeah, okay. I mean, we do see this kind of thing a lot in the sagas. Um, and it does give you kind of a sense of what life was like before cell phones. <laughs> there you go, millennials. It's a, a, another reason to read the sagas. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, Kari and Thorger have a choice to make. Uh, do they give chase or do they flee? Well, I think the fact that Kari immediately spurs his horse toward Myrdal answers that question. I know. I was trying to create some kind of tension. I don't think there was ever any doubt. No, no. And, and there's a great candidate for notable witticism here, if I may. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, when Thorger asks if Kari has a plan, he replies, I don't know, but it often turns out that men slain only with words live a long life. <laughs> so in other words, nah, he doesn't have a plan. Well, it would appear that he doesn't, but you have to appreciate the turn of phrase. It doesn't really accomplish much talking about what they're going to do or how they're going to kill their enemies, does it? Well, I think some of your great um, tacticians of history, Sun Tzu, for example, would argue that point. But I, I like the line. Sun Tzu, huh? Yeah, you know, art of war. Oh, I, I mean, I know who Sun Tzu is. I just didn't expect his name to pop up on this episode. <laughs> or any episode well, of Saga Thing, for that matter. I mean... <laughs> In fairness, Kari and Thorger clearly have also not read their Sun Tzu. <laughs> and it was true. available in the 11th century if they'd bothered to look for a copy. No, no, no. But uh, they, they, they're not worried about that book. They're going to opt for the direct approach instead. Yeah. And the, the carelessness with which they're approaching the fight is pointed out to them by a man they run into who's carrying peat baskets on his horse. Uh, he tells them that the two of them are fairly badly outnumbered. Well, I don't think Kari and Thorger are worried about that just now. No, but they probably should be. Well, just like the women, the man with the peat baskets knows exactly where the Sigfusons are. It turns out the Sigfusons are feeling quite comfortable after the settlement, despite all these unfavorable terms. Yeah, they're they're not in a rush to get anywhere, and I, I don't know if that's supposed to indicate they're you know just stupid or what. Uh, <laughs> but according to the man with the peat baskets, and I think we're just enjoying saying that, yes. uh, the Sigfusons are going to be dozing all day near Kerlingerdal. And just like that, Kari and Thorger are off to Kerlingerdal. They find the Sigfusons, as promised, sleeping the day away. It's a curious decision. Uh, and they're yeah. apparently sleeping quite soundly because Kari and Thorgy are able to sneak up and throw all of their spears into the <laughs> river. 
That's right. This would make a fun scene in the Nyal movie when we get around <laughs> to making that one. Oh, we're making a Nyal movie now? Uh, yeah, sure. One of these days when, you know, when the funding comes in. Ah, I see. One of these yeah. days. I'm not going to uh, hold my breath for the Kickstarter campaign. You uh, you carry on. <laughs> yeah, well, please don't. Uh, but imagine, Kari and Thorgir standing there over the sleeping Sigvasons. They've thrown the spears in the river and they're floating away slowly. And still, none of the Sigvasons have budged. <laughs> right, and now Kari and Thorgir are just staring at each other, sort of shrugging and wide-eyed in disbelief, <laughs> trying to figure out what to do next. Exactly, right? How do you wake up a bunch of guys you're about to kill? I mean, surely you don't gently nudge one and say, Hey, it's, it's time to get up, honey. Come on. No. Come meet your death. <laughs> you give you, you give them a good shout, which is what they do here. Sure, but I mean, w- think about this, though. What exactly do you shout? Is it just like a general scream? Or, or do you shout, <laughs> wake up! Is your, a Bane scream? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying not to be too loud. <laughs> which is kind of contrary to the purpose of a shout, I guess. Right, right. Uh, I don't think it matters what you shout. I think just a, a good holler is all that matters. I guess you're right. But, you know, I'd feel ridiculous either way standing over these guys. Right. Well, Kari and Thorgir are too focused on their mission to feel silly. They shout for the Sigvisons to wake up, and they even wait for them to gather their remaining weapons. Oh, that's so nice of them. Well, it would be shameful otherwise. Uh, Once everyone is armed, minus their spears, the battle can begin. And there's a great best bloodshed moment here where Thorgir swings his axe, Rimagugr. That's uh, uh, Scarpathen's old axe, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Yeah, this is the one that was uh, held for him by Kari. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just as Thorgir is about to attack Thorgil Sigvason, Another man rushes up to attack him from behind. And I'll just read the saga here. Before the man could get in a blow, Thorgir swung Rimagugr with both hands so fast and hard that on his backswing, the hammer of the axe hit the head of the man behind him and smashed his skull into pieces. He fell down dead at once. And when Thorgir swung the axe forward, it came down on Thorkel's shoulder and chopped off his arm. That's an impressive swipe of the axe. Two with one blow! Right. And Kari is busy as well. He's attacked first by Morth Sigvason, Sigurth Lambison, and Lambi Sigurdison. Now, this isn't anything that Kari can't handle. Lambi right. rushes at him and makes a thrust with his spear, but Kari leaps up, spreading his legs wide so the spear lands on the ground. And then he lands on the spear shaft, breaking it in two. It's mm. impressive acrobatics there. Now, remember when we first met Kari, he was doing a backward leap over a ship's boom during a sea battle. I mean, he's no That's slouch right. in the battle. In, in this case, he's got a spear in one hand and a sword in the other. He puts the spear straight through Sigurd Lambison's chest and the sword through the hip and backbone of Morth Sigvason, and both men die. Right, and poor Lambie Sigurdsson is left standing there with a broken spear shaft and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Which is why he runs off. Well, you can't blame him, right? No, not at all. And Thorgir and Kari manage to kill one other man, Laidoth the Strong, before the rest of the men uh, scatter and flee on their horses. And one of these men is Kettle of Mork, who is uh, Kari's brother-in-law. I still feel bad for Kettle. I mean, he he never really wanted any of this to happen. Well, Kari is also sympathetic to Kettle, as a matter of fact. Uh, he tells mm. Thorgir that they won't chase after the men just yet, and that he will never harm Kettle, since their wives are sisters, and because Kettle has always played fair. See, what a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Now, all in all, the ambush was obviously a huge success. Uh, Kari and Thorgir managed to kill five of the 15 men they found sleeping that day. They handled themselves brilliantly, I think. Mm-hmm. And the saga says they both gained a reputation after successfully taking on 15 men by themselves. But they are not out of the woods just yet. Remember, 10 mm-hmm. men got away and will surely want revenge, maybe. Right. Now, that's that's how feuds work. Uh, I want to point out, by the way, that this is, this is also a bit of one-upmanship by the saga author, because earlier in the saga, Gunnar and his two brothers took on 15 men. 
Mm. So Gunnar took on 15 men with two friends. Kari takes on 15 men with only one. Yeah. Just one of those setups that I like. Uh, now, at this point, we obviously know there's going to be further trouble, right? So uh, Thorgir contacts his brothers and moves them to a new farm where they'll be out of the line of fire and won't be implicated in any further violence. Yes, and from that day forward, Kari and Thorgir always keep 30 men around them. Yeah, it's a wise decision. Absolutely. Okay, uh, yeah, now let's shift over to Kettle of Mork, right, uh, who's just lost a couple of brothers. Uh, he and the other nine men who survived the ambush hightail it to Svinifel, where they report the attack to Flossi. And Flossi has some harsh words for his rather careless companions. He mm-hmm. says, And this should be a warning to you all never to travel like that again. That's good advice. Ah, uh, yes, but will they listen? Yeah, probably not. Well, they should listen, because Flossi isn't as dumb as we make him sound. No, no, he's not. Not at all. No, there's an interesting authorial side here that I, I want to get your opinion on, if I may. Mm-hmm. You may. The, the author interrupts the moment to praise Flossi, describing him as a very jovial man and an excellent host. And it was said that he was endowed with most of the qualities of a great chieftain. Not bad. Not bad. It's actually pretty good. Uh, that's what surprised me. I mean, Flossi is the frontman of the Burners, isn't he? I mean, it, it seems odd to pause at this moment in the revenge narrative to, to praise him. Uh, is this the, the author's way of saying all's forgiven, John? No, no, I don't think so. Uh, this is one of those moments where careful reading is needed. The author didn't say that Flossi is a great chieftain. He said Flossi was endowed with most of the qualities of a great chieftain. Okay. In other words, he's got the natural gifts, or most of them, but he's not the complete package. Hmm. I'd actually argue this is closer to a dig at Flossie than a compliment. Interesting. It's kind of like, imagine someone saying to us, well, you've clearly learned almost everything you need to be a great podcaster. Is that a compliment or isn't it? Uh, in our case, if someone's talking to me and has listened to the podcast, I'm going to say it's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but I have very low expectations. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's yeah, certainly okay. a lot that's, higher than I'd rank yeah. us, of course. That's a, that's a good point. Uh, but you know what I mean. Yeah. All right. Okay. So that makes sense. I'll accept so, that. There's a short break in the text here, and we jump ahead several months to just after Christmas. Hall of Sitha travels to visit his friend Flossi and to offer some much-needed advice. Now, Hall of Sitha really emerges as a much more important character in this saga than I remember. I mean, he seems to be everywhere, and he usually gives good advice. He does, and it's it's not different this time. Um, he tells Flossi that he needs to settle with Thorgir Skorgir as soon as possible. That the best way to make sure Thorgir settles will be to pay out what is owed to him for the death of Njal and his sons. That's reasonable. And then to ask for no compensation for the recent revenge killings against the Sigfusons. Ah, uh, well, now, now at first, for obvious reasons, this doesn't sound like good advice to Flossi. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're giving up a lot by not holding Thorgir accountable for the killings of the two and a half men that he attacked at Kerlingadal. Two uh, but Yeah, he, well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get you. You know, he he stabbed a guy and then the yeah, and then Kari but he didn't attack only half of them. He just <laughs> <laughs> he contributed. That's fine. Uh, you know, but the the point is that Hall is looking at the bigger picture here. Well, wise men tend to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hall tells Flossie that the price isn't too much, since he wouldn't have been responsible for the Sigfussons anyway. Right, that burden would have fallen to Hammond the Lame. Now, I don't know about you, John, but uh, I I couldn't quite recall who Hammond the Lame was when I read this part. Ah, uh, see, so, you now this is where the genealogies come in handy. Oh, I know. I mean, also the index at the back of the book is kind of helpful for finding mm-hmm. where he's mentioned. Uh, but Hama the Lame hasn't been mentioned since way back in chapter 19. And there he's listed in Gunnar's genealogy as the uh, the son of Gunnar's sister. 
Right. Now that makes sense, of course, because it's pretty traditional to name the firstborn son after the mother's father. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, Gunnar was Gunnar Hamundersen. Yes, he right? is. So this, his sister's son, is named after his father, Hamund. Yes. And so we have Hamund. But as Hall explains, the duty for either a lawsuit or any vengeance for the slain Sigvisons now falls to Hamund the Lame. It sounds like Hall might be saying that with a wink. I don't know if he is. Um, it's possible. But we've also, I mean, we obviously have seen one-legged men and injured men who are perfectly capable of taking revenge for things. Hell, in this very saga, we've seen um, Amundi the Blind take revenge for his own father. Oh, absolutely. Through uh, a miracle, of course. Right, um, right. But it's also worth pointing out that Hamun the Lame has no presence in the saga whatsoever. Absolutely. Uh, and it's possible that Hall doesn't necessarily think of him as somebody who would take revenge. Because, again, in this story in which every important person in Iceland has been involved in this feud, Hamun has been nowhere to be found. Absolutely. Which is kind uh, of lame, in my opinion. Well, oh. You see, see what I did? What you did there. Look what you did there. So the word, um, wordplay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sweep that under the rug. <laughs> <laughs> and you said that our earlier joke was the worst you'd ever heard. Well, I mean, uh, whatever the case, the point is that Flosi doesn't need to worry about the Sigfusons anymore, uh, which is probably welcome news. He was only involved in the feud with the Njalsons because they killed his son-in-law, Hoskold the Vidinaskoldi, right? Yes, I remember. Njal arranged the marriage between Flosi's niece, Hildegun, and his adopted son, Hoskold, who was actually the son of Thrain, who the Njalsons also killed. Uh, and we wonder how they ended up getting burned, hmm? Oh, I never wondered. It's it's clear why they got burned. The issue, if I can steer us back on course here, is that Flosi is now being offered the opportunity to honorably winnow the number of formidable opponents down to one if he can settle with Thorgir. Which leaves only Kari to look out for. Exactly. It's a good deal for Flosi, which is why he accepts the high cost of this settlement. Now, Hall personally takes charge of the negotiations, and he travels to visit both Thorgir and Kari at Holt to discuss the terms. Now, this is one of my favorite moments in the saga. Is it really? Yeah, I, I don't know why. I mean, I just, I, I do like the action and the intrigue that we find in the saga, but there's something really appealing to me in the exchange between uh, between Kari and Thorgir here. It begins with Hall of Seether's arrival at Holt, and this is kind of cool. He's described as wearing a black cape, and at his belt is a small axe inlaid with silver. And when mm-hmm. he rides into the hayfield, Thorgir and Kari go out to greet him and even help him down off the horse. They exchange kisses before making their way to the hall, and there they place Hall in the high seat of honor. Uh, it just goes to show how much they honor Hall of Seetha and what an important figure he is, despite the fact that he's um, he's Flosi's father-in-law and he's clearly been working with their enemy. Well, it's a very detailed account, and I like it too. Uh, but their discussion, I think, is equally fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Hall, Hall presents the terms of the settlement to Thorgir, right, explaining that he will receive what he's owed for the burning, and he won't have to pay compensation for the men he killed with Kari. It sounds reasonable, but Thorgir's reluctant to settle. Uh, but Hall works some magic, softening Thorgir's resistance to the idea. Sure, uh, but Thorgir isn't going to just give in to save his own hide. He also wants to know if there's any settlement for Kari. Hall claims he will be offered reasonable terms if he's willing to settle. Yeah, see, and that's the key. Kari isn't willing to settle. He says... Mm-hmm. I beg you to make a settlement, my friend Thorgir, for your part in this should not be better than good. Which is his way of saying that Thorgir's done well so far, but shouldn't put himself at any further risk by doing better than good. That's right. Uh, Kari insists again that he will never settle, although he admits that the burning itself has been sufficiently avenged. But the death of his son Thord is another matter entirely. Kari vows to take that vengeance for himself alone and to achieve what he can. 
Now, Thorgeir hears this and immediately refuses the settlement altogether, choosing to help his friend rather than secure his own safety. Right, now, despite that, Kari insists that Thorgeir accept the settlement. And eventually, Thorgeir gives in. The settlement is arranged, and Hall leaves the meeting with elaborate gifts from both men. Okay, now, we should pause here, because I'm mm-hmm. curious how you read Kari's efforts to save Thorgeir in this scene, John. Uh, okay. But let me set the stage a bit before you respond, if I, if I can. All right. All right. Now, when I read this, I see yet another example of Kari's strong character. He's willing to sacrifice the security and the aid a man like Thorgir could provide simply so that Thorgir, Kari's closest friend, can finally exit the cycle of violence and get on with his life. Now, that sounds reasonable. That's right. That's because it is. And, and that's why I was so surprised when reading William Ian Miller's Why Is Your Axe Bloody to find Miller casting doubt on Kari's motives. He acknowledges the positives, including Kari's effort to not humiliate Hall of Seetha by sending him home empty-handed. But then he says, I am, however, mistrustful of Kari. I'm not sure that Kari wants to share his moment in the Saga Sun with someone like Thorger, who's too much cut in Kari's mold. And then he concludes that Kari's eager to take the spotlight and the remaining body count for himself. Now, I ask you, John, is this a fair read of Kari's character? Uh, the short version? Absolutely not. Uh, I have tremendous respect for Miller, but I also know that he enjoys being a little provocative every now and then. Uh, for a number of reasons, I just can't accept that. Uh, mm-hmm. For one thing, Kari doesn't take the spotlight for himself. He links up with other friends and helpers, and as we're about to see, in at least one case, he deflects credit from himself to a lesser companion. Mm, kind of, sort of, but we can get into that later. Um, you, you still need to address why he sends Thorgar away. Well, for one thing, this revenge is extremely personal to Kari, and he's essentially devoting the rest of his life to it, or so it seems. He doesn't know how long this is going to take. Uh, he's also going to be putting himself in great danger and racking up a lot of enemies. As you said, he's sparing Thorgir from that danger. But he's also doing something else. And what's that? He's setting up some protection for his family. Mm-hmm. Now, his son is dead, but Kari has a wife and three daughters— Thorgird, Ronhild, and Valgird. We haven't mentioned them. They're only named toward the end of the saga. But he's got these three daughters as well. Before they part, Kari tells Thorgir, I want you to take over my property in trust and assign it to yourself and my wife and daughters so that it cannot be seized by my adversaries. Kari's trying to protect his family by hiding his assets, and he needs somebody he can trust to take responsibility for that. Ah, see, he's great Thingman material, John. He's going to be hard Mm. to pass up. I agree. Uh, But there are a lot of excellent choices in this saga. No matter what, we're going to end up passing on several good men. Sadly, yes. Um, It's going to be painful. But anyway, the uh, the settlement between Flossi and Thorgir is finalized when the two parties meet at Hoftabreka. And being the good friend that he is, Thorgir adds one more stipulation, that Kari be allowed to stay with him whenever he wants. Right now, that's a nice gesture because it means that Kari will be safe when he's on Thorger's property. It gives him a way to visit his family and to make sure that things are going well with the property. Right. Uh, now, as the feud over the burning of Njal and his sons comes to a close, Hall of Sida has one more bit of advice for Flosi. This is back at Flosi's place. He takes Flosi aside and says, Keep to all the terms of this settlement, my son-in-law, the exile and the pilgrimage to Rome and the compensation payments. You'll be regarded as a brave man, in spite of the fact that you landed in this terrible business, if you carry out these things manfully. Mm-hmm. And Flosi, being the basically good person that he is, promises <laughs> to fulfill his side of the bargain. 
Now, I know we're trying to wrap this section up, but I, I really like the way that he says that in spite of the fact that you landed in this terrible business. Mm. I, I think that's an acknowledgement of the horrible circumstances that kind of swept Flossie along. A bad turn of fate that in the end, I think I think he kind of handled with some honor. You mean apart from the burning of a dozen people in a farmhouse? Yeah, that, it's problematic, I'm going to admit. But but yeah, uh, I, I feel bad for Flossie. That's probably what I'm trying to say. Well, I don't think you're alone. I, mean, I don't, but I don't think you're alone. It's it's one of the things that makes the saga so enjoyable. It's a great work of literature, right? Nearly everyone in it from beginning to end is a complex character with nuanced motivations. These are some of the most human characters you'll find in medieval literature. Well said, John. I couldn't have put it better myself. Part 48, The Saga of Bjorn the White. I like that title. Mm. Now, even though Thorgeir's settlement allows for Kari to stay on Thorgeir's farm, Kari refuses to further implicate and endanger his friend. Again, he's a pretty great guy. Well, apparently, or an incredibly selfish one if you subscribe to Miller's interpretation. Well, I'm not buying that. Me neither, but we don't have to. It's just an interpretation. Like you said, though, Kari isn't willing to stick around any longer than he has to. And once the transfer of property that you mentioned is complete, Kari has nothing to his name for anyone to claim, and he's finally free to pursue his revenge. It's a smart move, but it does leave him without any resources of his own. Resources? The only resources he needs are food, shelter, and the incredible fortitude to complete the mission. Well, he's got the fortitude to get things done, but once he leaves the safety of Thorger's farm... He's going to need some help with the food and shelter thing. Uh, yeah, Kari's likable enough. I'm sure he can find someone to take him in and provide sustenance. I mean, what about old Goodman the Powerful? There were rumors going around that he was uh, he was up there anyways. No, you can't expect Kari to go that far north away from the many hopes to kill, right? Right. Remember, he's got a tight timeline. Most of the men, or at least the, the important ones, are preparing to begin their outlawry. Even as Kari and Thorger are sharing their final embrace... Flossie and his men are getting their affairs in order so they can leave Iceland. That's right, and uh, we're going to get to that in just a second. But before that, we need to follow Kari to his next destination. Yeah, he doesn't go far, actually. Uh, his wanderings no. take him to Thorsmork, a little to the northeast of where he's been staying with Thorgir. Yeah, it's not far at all, actually, if you look at a map. But it's a, it's a perfect place for him to hide out and wait for the right moment to strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might recall that Kari's brother-in-law is Kettle Sigfason, also known as Kettle of Mork, because he lives in this territory. Right. So Kari's settling down right in the heart of the Sigfason's land. Yeah, it's a risky move, but as we know, Kari isn't exactly a risk-averse kind of avenger. Now, that's putting it lightly. Uh, now, at this point, we should introduce a few new characters to the saga. I know, at this point, we're still introducing people. <laughs> uh, we're told that a man named Bjorn the White lives at one of the farms near Thorsmork. He's married to Valgard, a woman who turns out to be Gunnar of Hitherendi's cousin. And we're told that Valgard didn't marry Bjorn for love. Yes, uh, Bjorn and Valgard are a bit of an odd couple. Mm-hmm. And the saga tells us that Bjorn was sharp-sighted and swift of foot, but that he was also given to self-praise, and his wife hated that. Yeah, they everything about these two feels like a genuine couple. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, it, it's almost as if the saga author took a bit of his own life, maybe a couple he knew, maybe his parents or or one of his what? own relationships, and, and then wrote it into the saga at this point just to kind of oh uh, burn off some steam. You do spin a tale, don't you? Uh, <laughs> well, the results are great. Uh, anyway, so this is the household that Kari comes to for help. And he knows exactly how to get on Bjorn's good side. He says, 
I sense that I'm in good hands with you. You're keen-sighted and swift, which I read in the narrative, and I suspect that you have great courage. He just read about him. (laughs) (laughs) A reliable voiceover who I occasionally hear as I ride told me. Yes. Well, I mean, remember, he's from this area. He hangs out in this area quite frequently. So he might know know Bjorn's uh, reputation. And it's a smart move. Bjorn loves this. Mm -hmm. He says, I won't question my keen eyesight or my courage or my many other qualities. (laughs) Is that the Bjorn voice? (laughs) It has to be. Uh, Now, Valgard overhears all this, and you can just imagine her rolling her eyes and sighing. And finally, she can't take it anymore and says, May the trolls take your swaggering and strutting, Bjorn. You shouldn't try to fool both yourself and Carrie with such deceit and nonsense. I'll gladly give Carrie the food and other things he needs, but don't count on Bjorn for bravery, Carrie. <laughs> She's a real gem. I mean, just picture Carrie sitting there silently at the table while Volgard and Bjorn are exchanging insults. <laughs> it's got to be one of the most awkward scenes in the sagas as he's just sipping his cup slowly. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I mean, it depends on what kind of awkward you're looking for. I mean, uh, remember in Ale Saga when Ale and his father exchange killings and they sit down to dinner with one of the corpses still lying on the floor next to them. <laughs> That's awkward. Or, or what about the men who get their butt cheeks cut off sometimes? Uh, oh, try right. Try picture them oh, sitting yeah. down at the evening meal afterwards. Right. That's awkward. That's a good point. Anyway, so despite the uncomfortable squabbling between the hosts, Kari's content to stay with Bjorn. Uh, it proves to be a good decision, though, because nobody knows where exactly Kari went after leaving Thorgar's farm. I imagine that Bjorn and Valgard's antics are well known to most of the region, so who would really expect anyone to stay there for more than one evening? Yeah, it's a brilliant bit of subterfuge by Kari. I mean, just to ensure that no one will come looking for him, he asks Bjorn to spread a rumor that he ran into Kari one day and learned that he was heading north to stay with, guess who? Finbogi? Close. Very close, actually, <laughs> geographically. Uh, Gudwin the Powerful. Yeah, no, I should have known. Uh, <laughs> the saga shifts now to Flossi and the Sigfusins as they prepare to travel abroad. Now, at this point, they're all together in finalizing their plans, which involve purchasing a ship from a Norwegian merchant who's desperate for some land in Iceland. Yes, that's Eolf Nose from ah. Trondheim, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though Eolf is only in the saga to make a boat available to Flossi, even he gets a fully fleshed out backstory. Sure. I mean, this author, he's incredibly thorough. Yeah, he is. But if you stick with this episode long enough, you'll find that even this incredibly thorough author gets gets kind of tired of his own narrative. <laughs> <laughs> True, right. But uh, don't spoil the anticlimax for everyone, John. Mm. What's important for now is that with passage abroad arranged, the Sigfusins all take their leave of Flossi, uh, riding west to gather supplies for the journey and to settle their affairs at home. Right, now let's not forget, before they leave, Flossi reminds them they shouldn't believe the rumors about Kari going up north. He tells them to ride in groups and to be cautious. That's good advice. Again, mm. but the Sigfusins are confident that Kari isn't much of a threat anymore, and plus they believe the rumors. He's nowhere near. Uh-huh. It's a, now, at this point, Flossie, of course, pulls Kettle aside and reminds him about the dream that he had a while back. This is in Chapter 133, last episode. Uh, he points out that Kettle is actually traveling with many of the men named in that dream. That's right, and Kettle admits that this is true, but seems resigned to whatever might happen. He says... All things in the lives of men will come to their fated end. But your warning's well meant. Yeah, it's easy to say when you weren't named in the dream, Kettle. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Now, you're not going to get very far with that attitude, boy. Uh, 
So ignoring all of Flossie's advice, the Sigfusons ride off with their companions, and they are 18 men in all. Their path takes them right through Bjorn's property. When they see him, they ask for any news. Bjorn tells them that he saw Kari recently on his way up north to stay with Gudman the Powerful. Just to make sure they buy the story, he waggles his eyebrows and <laughs> shrugs his shoulders <laughs> at them. He adds that Kari seemed really afraid of getting caught by the Sigfusons. So they've got nothing to worry about. Oh, he's really a mastermind, that Bjorn. Well, swift of foot and swift of tongue, you know. Well, it <laughs> tells me that Flosi wouldn't have been so easily convinced. But the Sigfusons take the bait. They laugh at Kari's cowardice and then tell Bjorn exactly where they'll be staying, when they'll be on the move again, and where they'll be at every stage of their preparations. Again, pretty convenient. Yeah, maybe realistic. Like you said, it's it's important to let others know where you'll be if you need to be found for some reason. And uh, since they don't believe Kari is anywhere nearby, they don't mind divulging the information. Which proves extremely useful to Bjorn, because he rushes right home and shares all of the information with uh, Kari. And once again, we get a fun little domestic scene where Kari and Bjorn make their plans while Vagard listens in. Kari explains he'd like to make arrangements to travel abroad, leaving from Altafjord in the east. Yeah, and this part confused me a little bit. I mean, first of all, why does he want to travel abroad suddenly? And and second, why, of all the places that he could leave from, why Altafjord? It's pretty far east. It's the far eastern coast of Iceland. Certainly, there's got to be a port that's closer to Mork than, uh, than the, the one in Altafjord. It's entirely possible he has no intention of sailing anywhere just yet. But the fact that he wants to travel east to the port gives him an excuse to travel through the heart of the Sigfusson's land. That's true. We've talked before about how that kind of thing can be a deliberate provocation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also possible that he fully intends to make his way abroad to chase down any of the burners who get away on that Norwegian ship. So, uh, in that regard, I guess it's a good plan. And who's better than Kari at getting all the ducks in a row? Mm. So, Bjorn is cautiously excited about the plan, and he says, That's a risky undertaking! And not many men besides you and me would have the courage for it. Hmm? Huh? <laughs> and as you expect, Volgard is ready with a scornful retort. If you let Kari down, you might as well know you'll never come into my bed again. My kinsmen will divide the property between us. Ah, it's more likely, my dear wife, that you'll have to think of some other grounds for divorce because I'm going to bring evidence of what a champion and man of prowess I can be in battle. <laughs> now, the saga doesn't actually say that Volgard laughed herself to sleep that night, but I think we have to assume she did. <laughs> Perhaps, but uh, Bjorn will get the chance to prove his mettle. Mm-hmm. He rides with Kari into the mountains, keeping off the main roads, and eventually they settle in a hollow near the Skafta River and wait. Right, now... Bjorn starts weighing the options available to them from this vantage point. He says they can either run or fight, which is really just brilliant situational awareness on his part. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the saga says even that uh, Kari enjoys listening to him debate these two options back and yeah. forth over and over. Yeah, good old Bjorn. Uh, he's prepared to serve as comic relief, if nothing else. Yeah, well, he's not totally useless because, listen to this, before long the Sigfussons arrive, Kari situates himself on a small point of land that projects out into the river, which protects his flanks and forces the Sigfussons to attack only from the front. Yeah, that's a good strategy. He tells Bjorn to stand behind him and prepare for the fight, to which Bjorn replies, I never expected to use another man for a shield, but then slides right in behind Kari. There's our brave Bjorn the White. And don't forget, he adds, Anyway, with my brains and speed, I can still cause our enemies no little harm. Ha <laughs> uh-huh. Well, as you said, he's, he's not a real totally now. useless. Uh, Kari manages to kill five of the attackers on his own, 
but Bjorn does pop out from behind to lop off an attacker's hand now and then. Now, among the slain are Mothoff Kettleson, Lombi Sigurdsson, who we've seen in a bunch of these fights, Thorstein Gerlifsson, and Gunnar of Skal, who we're told was a good farmer. Yeah, he just kind of throws that in there. <laughs> now, outside of Lombi Sigurdsson, uh, who was at the last fight with Kari and Thorgir, I don't think I've heard of these other guys. Not even Gunnar of Skal, the famous farmer? <laughs> no, uh, and and that actually might be a problem for me. Yeah, how so? Why, why is Kari killing Gunnar of Skal, who hasn't been mentioned at all? What role did he have in the burning of Njal's house? Well, I mean, the saga doesn't mention him among the burners, but we don't get everybody's name. I know, I mean, but there's still something a little troubling about this death for me. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it there. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to the results of the battle, shall we? Uh, we're told that the others in the party, uh, like Grani Gunnarsson, are wounded. And the saga even tells us that Bjorn himself managed to wound three men in that battle. Oh, good for Bjorn. Although, not to pick any nits, but the saga also notes he never really put himself forward enough to be at risk. So, Volgard was right about him, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Eh, kind of, but not really. I mean, as, as we see, Bjorn isn't as amazing as he himself claims to be, but neither is he quite so useless as his wife thinks he is. It's another nice touch by the author. Yes, I, I think William Ian Miller makes a similar point in Wiser Axe Bloody. He seems quite taken with Bjorn, actually. Oh, can you blame him? No way, man. I mean, who's cooler and more courageous in this saga than Bjorn? Uh, Come on, John. Um, uh, no, I know. I, I, I'm thinking about this, and I, I was thinking when we choose Thingman, yeah. you might want to consider uh-huh. Bjorn. Yeah. Do you? You think I should do that? Uh, I'll I think about think it. So. I'll think about it very seriously. <laughs> in the meantime, everyone else rides away as fast as they can, leaving Kari and Bjorn victorious and unharmed. It's a pretty good showing. It's a great um, showing. Now they ride over to Skal and report the slayings, thus avoiding the potential for a murder charge. And Bjorn can't, just can't help himself. He's all puffed up with victory. He starts boasting about how he couldn't be bothered to finish off the wounded. Silly Bjorn. Now, the men of Skull clearly know Bjorn's <laughs> reputation because they respond saying that few men's corpses ever rotted because of you, Bjorn. Wow, sick burn, men of Skull. Oh, sick burn indeed. Uh, do you want to wrap up the section now or do you think we can squeeze in one more battle? Oh, what the heck? Let's do one more. All right, we, we can do this next one pretty quick. Uh, how about this? Uh, they set another ambush by the river and are soon at it again with six more men. Kari kills Glumhlidison by cutting mm-hmm. off his leg at the thigh. He then turns quickly and dispatches Vebrand and Osbron Thorfinson, uh, running one of them through with his sword and chopping the legs out from under the other. Now, Kettle of Mork, Kari's brother-in-law, is in this battle as well. He rushes at Kari and thrusts him with a spear, but Kari manages to swing his leg up and avoid the blow. Then he grabs Kettle in his arms, holding him tightly so that he can't move. Yeah, this is an interesting moment. Bjorn rushes up to finish Kettle, but Kari stops him and says, Hold still, Bjorn. I will spare Kettle. And even if it happens again, Kettle, that I have the power over your life, I'll never kill you. Well, Kari is a man of principle. Plus, I don't think he'd ever hear the end of it if he went home having killed his wife's sister's husband. Uh, <laughs> say that again? What, his wife's sister's husband? <laughs> That's a funny way of saying his brother-in-law, but... uh. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, Anyway, Kettle and the rest of the men ride away as fast as they can, once again leaving Kari and Bjorn victorious. The men of the district form a search party to find Kari, but come up empty after three days of looking. Hmm. Go look at Bjorn's house. Yeah. Hmm? Well, no, no, no. Nope, nobody stays there. 
Uh, in the end, Kettle rides back to Svinafel and reports the killings to Flosi. Uh, and Flosi's response is rather telling, I think. Mm. Uh, first of all, he's very disappointed in his friends. Well. Uh, but he also says, in admiration, there's no one in our land now who can match Kari. Well, it's high praise. Yeah, well, it's well-deserved. Kari's a force to be reckoned with. What about Bjorn? He was actually helpful in that battle. Was he really? Well, I mean, what did he accomplish? Well, he was the one to block Glum's spear. and He apparently True. helped in the exchange with the Thorfinsons. Okay, I mean, but that's not much better than last time. And and going back to William Miller's point, uh, Kari seems to have set himself up with someone who's not going to claim any of the bodies. Now, again, I don't agree with Miller, but his mm. point is that uh, Kari's claiming every life. Right, but uh, all he, Kari wants him for is someone to watch his back. Right? That's true. And he's, he's very complimentary when they return to Bjorn's place. Yeah, I, I love this bit. Uh, before Kari and Bjorn enter the house, Bjorn pulls Kari aside and says, Now, you you must be a true friend in the presence of my wife, or she won't believe a word I say, and this means a lot to me. Please pay me back now for all the good support I've given you. Well, and, and Kari does, right? He plays you, you gotta admit, that's kind of pathetic, though. <laughs> it is. It is a little bit sad. Uh, but when Volgard asks how things went, Kari says, Bear is the back of a brotherless man. Bjorn turned out very well. He injured three men and was wounded himself. He was supportive to me in every way he could be. Now, I like to think that this this moment brings Bjorn and Valgard some happiness. I, I Me too, but there is a small problem. Well, what's that? Well, Bjorn and Valgard aren't safe now that they've been outed as Kari's supporters. Ah, true, but that is easily resolved. Yeah, it is. Uh, Kari brings them to Thorgir Skorgir and asks him to take them under his protection. Can I just say how happy I am for Bjorn at this moment? I mean, think about it. He's now important enough to have enemies that want to kill him. Oh, that's great. Well, I guess it's considered a step in the right direction for Bjorn, right? I mean, it's in terms of his public honor, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, William Ian Miller actually makes a big point of this, uh, in part because he loves Bjorn. He sees Bjorn as standing outside the saga. And here's what he has to say about it. It's quite interesting. Bjorn, long before Don Quixote, reminds us that the sagas generated fantasy lives back then as fictional heroes still do for us today. The difference between Bjorn's fantasy and ours is that he actually was called upon to play a part in the saga not of his own imagining, after having fantasized being in real ones all along to everyone's eye-rolling mockery and to his wife's impatience and contempt. I I don't know if I 100% agree with all of that, but it's a great Uh way of thinking about Bjorn's place in the saga for me. And what a claim to compare him to Don Quixote. Right. Uh, well, even if we don't see him as living out his saga life fantasy and tilting at windmills, Bjorn does have an important place in the saga. He may be a bit indecisive and even be a bit of a fool, uh, which kind of lightens the mood of the section, which mm-hmm. is important. Bjorn emerges on the right side of the story. He's a decent model for what can be achieved by an everyman in extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. And the fact that he even has a place in the saga is remarkable enough, especially for him. But uh, it is time to say goodbye to good old Bjorn. Uh, We'll leave him in the safe care of Thorgir for now. That's fine. I trust Thorgir. Now back to Kari. He tells Thorgir that he plans to travel abroad so he can track down and kill Gunnar Lambeson and Cole Thorstensen. Yes, and he notes that their deaths will bring the grand total of Forkari's revenge up to 15, which is a very respectable number. If you're into that sort of thing. Well, Kari is into that sort of thing, and so is Thorgir. Yes. And for that matter, so is Oscar Melita Grimson, who Kari visits after Thorgir and says the same thing, and, and then Geezer the White, who he meets after that. I mean, everyone seems to just love Kari's plan. 
you know, I'm I'm willing to bet that if they knew about it, the families of Gunnar Lambeson and Cole Thorstensen wouldn't share that enthusiasm. <laughs> well, to be fair, Kari didn't poll those people, but uh, I have a feeling that you might be right. And with that, Kari is on his way. After his final meeting with Gizzard the White, now that everybody knows where he's going, mm-hmm. he rides down to Eror and uh, books passage overseas with Colbin the Black, a man from Orkney. Orkney, you say? Hmm, I wonder mm-hmm. if that's going to be relevant. Could be. Part 49, Murder in the Court. Oh, scary. Andy, do you remember back in the introduction when we mentioned that some scholars view this saga as a compilation of several different sagas? Oh, that was a very, very long time ago, even though we hinted at it at the introduction to this episode. But uh-huh. uh, yeah, I remember. Uh, and we're about to enter into one of those sections of the saga that doesn't seem to fit as well as we'd like it, aren't we? Yes, we are. Uh, Although we could argue that the author weaves this episode in more cleverly than he's typically given credit for. Uh, We shouldn't forget that we spent a good amount of time in the Orkney Island court of Earl Sigurd the Stout earlier in this saga. Right. Uh, We covered that in episode 20F when the Njalsons traveled. That might have been around Christmas time, if I remember. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when the Njalsons traveled abroad to make men of themselves. Um, and, and that's where we met uh, Kari for the first time. If you remember, right. he bumps into Helgi and Grim Njalsson as they're preparing to fight some Vikings led by uh, Snackolf and Grotgard. Uh, 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 Kari was champion of Earl Sigurd and was uh, the one to introduce the Njalsons to Earl Sigurd in Orkney. Exactly. Now, Kari went back to Iceland with Helgi and Grim, married Njal's daughter Helga, participated in the murder of Hoskel Finnesgothi and... And really got himself burned to death as a result. Wow, he's been very busy. He certainly has. Um, but we're not covering Kari right now. We're supposed to be talking about Flosi. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. Uh, how do we end up talking about Kari's history? Well, you were saying that the foundation for these next few chapters was laid way back in the middle of the saga, which was a fair ah, point right. before we got distracted. And at the same time, the stuff we are about to cover isn't widely regarded as the author's best work. Yeah, this is the section that William Ian Miller titles How Not to End a Saga. Uh, yes. As Flosi and Kari begin wandering around the North Sea, Miller pauses to wonder, is this the same man who wrote the sublime composition we have just read? How could his taste lapse like this? <laughs> and Miller notes that he has no doubt this is the author's own development, regardless of what sources he might be using. Well, tradition holds that the author was accessing a lost saga called Brian's Saga. Brian, the babe, they call Brian. <laughs> he had arms and legs <laughs> and hands and feet. And then he grew spotty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, so it's the story of Ireland's high king, Brian Baru. Uh, although a lot of ink has been spilled over the presumed existence of Brian's uh-huh. saga, we should say. Uh, you can read all about this in Lars Lonroth's Njal's Saga, A Critical Introduction. Uh, however we choose to read this final section, I think it's important that we share Miller's conclusion to the chapter that you just mentioned. It's quite interesting. Oh, yeah, I know I know which part you want to share. Go ahead. Yeah, Miller's admittedly at a loss. Uh, he concludes his discussion of the saga with a final resignation, I'll term it. He says, I'm left with one true theory. Sometimes some of the greatest writers are not good at writing endings. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say he's wrong, but I've spent too much time studying Geoffrey Chaucer, 
And I'm not entirely sure <laughs> that he is. Yeah. Well, let me throw out this possibility if if I can, uh, uh, and then we'll start our review of these final mm-hmm. chapters. Isn't it possible that what we have at the end of this saga is a draft? Huh? I think critics are right to point out that the writing near the end of the saga doesn't match the rest. Its pacing is off, as is the characterization. So there, there are some odd shifts in the narratives that we see that feel to me like compiled notes rather than more polished prose. I don't know. I, does that make sense to you? I don't really know about that, to be honest. Uh, I'll just say this. Oh, thanks. In the interest of wrapping up sooner rather than later, if this is the author's idea of a good digression to help move the plot toward its end, then he's failed spectacularly in its execution. <laughs> Fair enough, but there are some spectacular moments in it, and that's what we'll spend our time talking about it. Uh, again, there's a lot of critical discourse on this subject out there if you're interested. But for now, let's check in with Flossie and see what all the fuss is about. Okay. Flossie and most of his thingmen set sail from Iceland to begin their outlawry. Uh, like many of the ships that leave Iceland shores... This one encounters bad weather, and it's blown off course. I wonder where it will go. Well, who knows? One day, the ship is struck by three huge waves, and Flossie concludes that they've slipped into the breakers off the shore of some unknown land. Mm. Now, is this good news or bad news? Land is in sight. Yeah, it's bad news. Uh, Ah. they, They can't see where they're going because of a dense fog and a violent storm whips up around them. The breakers are a very bad place to be. Yeah, it makes sense. Before long... They find themselves being washed ashore and their ship being broken to pieces. Uh, it's not all bad, though. At least they're alive. At least they have their health. <laughs> they... It, it depends on their perspective. Uh, when they ask around among the locals where it is they've managed to land, they learn that they are on mainland in Orkney. This isn't welcome news to Flossie. Uh He shakes his head and says, We could have made a better landing. <laughs> well, that's the understatement of the year. Well, no, I mean, yes, true, but that's not the point. The point he's making is, Helgi Njalsson, whom I killed, was the follower of Earl Sigurd Lothesson. Uh-oh, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of the wreck, Flossie is stuck. He doesn't have a ship, and he doesn't have any of the supplies that he brought. So all that planning and running around back in Iceland turns out to be an incredible waste of time. Yep. There's a lesson uh, in there. I've often thought that people who traveled by sea in the pre-modern era just had to have astounding reserves of patience and force. Oh, absolutely. You've got to be very flexible. Oh, my gosh. Now, rather than sneaking around and hiding from Earl Sigurth, Flossie decides to confront his fate head-on by turning himself into the Earl. It's a bold and honorable move. I know you don't like Flossie all that much, but he does a lot of stuff that is quite reasonable, in my opinion. And while that said, while I appreciate what he's trying to do, I think he could have introduced himself to Earl Sigurd with a bit less bravado. Do you remember what he says? <laughs> How could I forget? Yeah, we're, we're told that the Earl already knows about the burning before Flossie mm-hmm. arrives. And when Sigurd asks, what can you tell me about my follower, Helgi Njalsson? Yeah, Flossie replies, this, that I struck off his head. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> not good. Thud. Uh... I'm guessing Flossie was a graduate of the Gunlaug Serpent Tongue School of Tact. <laughs> do you do you have a boil on your leg? Embarrassed about limping in front of the Jarl of Norway? Have you killed the Jarl's best friend? Worried that he'll end up liking you too much? Come to the Gunlaug Serpent Tongue School of Tact and learn how to lose friends and make enemies. 
it it seems that Flossy is an accomplished graduate because his comment <laughs> has a violent effect on Earl Siegert. They are As you immediately would expect. Yeah. They're they're immediately arrested and promised a very swift death. Right. But suddenly from out of nowhere a savior appears. Uh, of course. Who is it? Uh Thorstein, the son of Hall of Sila. Of course. Who's that? I just told you he's the son of the of Hall of Sila. Yeah, I, I got that. I mean, but where the heck does he come from? Uh, Who is this guy? Come on, you know how these sagas work. Hall lost one son at the battle at the All Thing, but he's got others, mm-hmm. and the saga does at least explain the connection and that uh, Thorstein has a connection to Flosi. You see, Flosi is married to Steinvor, Thorstein's sister. And apparently, Thorstein came to Orkney at some point and became a follower of Earl Sigurd, which explains why he's at court that day. Well, it's a good thing he was, either way. Uh, incidentally, I assume you know that Thorstein has his own saga? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. I, I looked it over while preparing for the Klontarf section of this episode, because yeah. it's a, kind of a, a big piece in there. Uh, it's a fragmentary saga. I think it's missing uh, the beginning and maybe another good chunk in the middle or end. Uh, right, but... that's right. Yeah, uh, it's one of those frustrating ones. Uh, but we'll yeah. eventually get around to covering that one, too, for all of you saga fans out there. Oh, just you wait. Oh. <laughs> Now, for now, Thorstein manages to persuade Earl Sigurd to spare Flosi. After some time passes, Flosi eventually agrees to a legal settlement with the Earl and, as is traditional, takes Helgi's place as Sigurd's follower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much for that uh, pilgrimage to Rome, huh, Flosi? Well, what's he supposed to do? Earls have a way of keeping good men from leaving. Yeah, often against their will. Well, I mean, I'm not entirely sure this is against Flosi's will, but his service does begin with a bit of coercion. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, check in with Kari, shall we? Okay. So just about a month and a half after all this, Kari and his new friend Colbin set sail from Iceland. They arrive at Fair Isle between Shetland and Orkney. And there they learn all about Flosi's travels. And and, they... and, and now let's shift yes. back to the court of Earl Sigurd, shall we? Uh, what about Kari? Well, you know that's about all we get from Kari for now. Uh, I think the author <laughs> just wants to build the tension by making sure we, we know he's not far off. So there's a lot of uh-huh. quick jumps here. Yeah, well, this is where the timing in the saga gets a little wonky. Wonky, yes. That's the term I would have chosen. Well, at this point, we're being introduced to a slew of new characters and new political dynamics that are they are only tangentially relevant to the saga we've been covering. And thematically, not at all. <laughs> but, well, uh, that's this, fair. Again, this is the beginning of the section that critics have a problem reconciling with the rest of the narrative. Exactly. Uh, we're told that Earl Sigurd invites his brother-in-law, Earl Gilly of the Hebrides, for a visit. He also invites King Sigtrig of Ireland. Yeah, the relationships here are important. So we're going to try to keep it all straight for you, but we'll probably fail. Um, <laughs> try to follow this. Uh, King Sigtrig is the son of Olaf Kvarven and Kormlot. Uh, you won't have to worry about Kvarven, uh, but Sigtrig's mother is worth remembering. Uh, fans of Irish history will know her as Gormleth, uh, a temperamental and dangerous woman generally regarded for her exterior beauty and her interior putridity. I'm sorry, putridity? <laughs> sorry about that, yeah. Uh, putridity, yeah, probably could have phrased that better. She's not yeah, so nice. covers it. Um, and Cormlod uh, slash Gormleth uh, has been married to the High King of Ireland, Brian Beru. 
And he's the one who's really important for this narrative going forward. If you want to know more about him, uh, I, I highly recommend you listen to episode 11 of the Irish History Podcast, which I've tweeted about, but uh, I'll also link to this uh, this episode description. Um, and if you prefer primary sources, well, everyone, you're in luck because Brian and Cormlod are everywhere. We can start with the Annals of Ulster, the Orkneying Saga, the Coda, uh, and any number of other medieval Irish and Scottish chronicles or literary texts. Uh, we're heading for the Battle of Clontarf, people. If you haven't heard of it, then you've never really looked into Irish history, honestly. It's one of the most significant, epic-defining battles of the Irish Middle Ages. It's like 1066 yeah. for the British. Mm-hmm. Only it's in 1014. Huh. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we get to the battle, uh, we've got to finish setting the stage. There's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, right. There is a lengthy and detailed digression into Brian's history here in chapter 154. Uh, like the conversion episode from earlier in Njal's saga, there's enough here to suggest that the author's quoting near verbatim from another source. This is right, not his gives, stuff. Right, and this gives rise to this idea that there was once a Brian saga out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Lars Lonworth doesn't necessarily buy the Brian Saga theory, uh, but it's more for a lack of evidence than anything. Uh, but he does a nice job of showing that the author of Njal Saga is clearly condensing outside source material here by analyzing variations in the extant manuscripts. I'm glad you said that. I, I don't think, I don't, we probably never mentioned it, but Njal Saga is one of the more popular sagas out there, and not just among modern audiences. Late right. medieval, early modern audiences both loved this saga because we've got over 60 extant manuscripts of the saga dating from 14th century all the way to the 17th. Now, when you say we, I mean, people have 60 copies. We've only <laughs> got like seven or eight. It's uh, still, it's a, I only it's have uh, two copies of myself and they're well. both from Penguin. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, a pretty impressive literary footprint for a saga. You could say that again. Oh, do I have to? It's a pretty <laughs> impressive literary footprint for us. <laughs> Just get on with it. So we learn all about Brian's family, his political allegiances, his pilgrimage to Rome, his judicial practices, his dairy allergy, his <laughs> preference for cats. I, I mean, a ton of a stuff. part of the uh, Judean People's Front or the People's Front? People's of Front of Judea. Splitters. <laughs> You basically, you find out a ton of stuff you can learn by uh, reading his chapter for yourself. Uh, <laughs> yes. the, the important thing to take from Brian's introduction is that he's uh, got some amazing sons. Uh, for the purposes of our discussion, the most important one is Tog or Tom. Yeah, and as the author points out, Cormlod wasn't the mother of any of Brian's children. Uh, he actually divorced her for, this might surprise you, being a horrible person. <laughs> for her, uh, what was the term? Her... Putridity? Uh, yes, uh, thanks for the reminder. Uh-huh. Uh, and in her putridity, she's eager to see King Brian meet his death sooner rather than later. You know, this is where King Sigtrick comes in. Uh, Cormoth plans to use her son to achieve Brian's death, but she knows that Sigtrick can't accomplish the feat on his own. He'll need help. Which is why she sends him to Secret's court, where Earl Gilly happens to be visiting. Right. And that brings us back to the start of this discussion, finally. Mm-hmm. It's Christmas Day! Merry Yay. Christmas! All the noblemen are gathered in Sigurd's Hall for a great feast and some entertainment. Earl Gilly and his men are seated on one side of Sigurd, and King Sigtrig and his men on the other. And now the saga author finally returns to his own story. <laughs> uh, Sigtrig uh-huh. and Gilly have heard of the burning of Njol, and they want to know the whole story. And so a chair is set up for one of Flosi's companions. 
Right. Finally, some drama. Who's going to tell yeah. the story? It's Gunnar Lambeson. Oh, I know someone who's looking for him. Yeah, so do I. Uh, let's find out what uh, Kari's been up to. I hope everyone is appreciating without losing their head entirely just how jumbled up this part of the story is. Yeah, I don't know if appreciate there is the right word, but yeah. yeah. Uh, Kari and Colbin have been staying with a man called David. Unbeknownst to everyone in the hall sitting around listening to Gunnar Lambeson tell a story, Kari, Colbin, and David are right outside the hall. Sorry, every that. time I hear every time I hear David in the middle of this, I get <laughs> I get taken right out of the saga. Um, it's like reading uh, Tristan and Assault and you're reading about King Mark. Yeah, it just it just throws you right off. Uh, and they can hear everything. Uh, King Sigtrick asks Gunnar how Scarpathen carried himself during the burning. Gunnar says very well to begin with, but uh, by the end he was weeping. Which we know isn't true, of course. Right. Uh, and the more Kari listens to Gunnar's tale, the more he swells with rage at the lies being told. Mm-hmm. And finally, he can't take it anymore. He bursts into the room with sword drawn and speaks a verse. Men bold of battle, boast of the burning of Njal. But have you heard how we harried them? Those givers of gold had a good return. Ravens feasted on their raw flesh. And with that, he races across the hall and strikes Gunnar Lambison on the neck. Gunnar's head flies off so fast that it lands on the table in front of the king and earls, spattering everyone with blood. Yeah, it's a hell of a climax for Gunnar's story, don't you think? It is. Uh, of course, Sigurd isn't too happy about this breach of peace in his hall. He also recognizes Kari at once as his former follower. Yeah, and uh, they didn't exactly part on the happiest of terms. So with that, he orders his men to seize Kari and kill him immediately. Yeah, uh, but everyone else in the hall... All of Sigurd's followers also recognize Kari, and they love the guy. Right? They have such great respect for Kari that not one man rises to carry out the Earl's orders, which yes, has got to be a little embarrassing. Yeah. And at that moment, Kari reminds the Earl of the reason for the killing. Many men would say, Lord, that I did this deed for you to avenge one of your followers. That's a good response. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it might not be enough. Yeah, if only someone would emerge and speak up and intervene on Kari's behalf. <laughs> well, there's no one there who can do it. I mean, the only one there who could speak is Flosi. Flosi? I mean, isn't Kari supposed to kill him as well? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, but Flosi does speak up. Uh, he says, Kari did not do this without reason. He has not yet made peace with us and did only what he had to do. Uh, see, that's kind of cool. I, you like to pick on Flosi, but think about that it's a really cool well, moment sure and and with that check this out kari turns around walks out into the inky shadows and away from the story for now um <laughs> inky shadows aside he's not done just yet <laughs> and neither are we uh, everyone in the hall is impressed with kari's handling of his duty and of course with the dramatic finish to gunnar's story mm-hmm. it's gonna be a hell of a difficult thing to make an encore of though <laughs> really um uh, Flosi now steps in and tells the story of Njal's burning properly, distinguishing him once again as an honorable man. Uh, Well, you know, he's not too bad. And when the tale is told, King Sigtrick takes the floor and introduces the plan to meet King Brian in battle. I'm sure he had the most delicate transition. Oh, oh, Sigurd. Speaking of people burning to death, not to mention wholesale slaughter, of course, have you ever considered the problem of King Brian? I'd love to set him on fire. Or at least my mother really wants to. I'm just along for the ride, really. What do you say? 
Yeah, well, Sigurd isn't terribly interested in getting involved in all of that, especially with a man who talks like that. Uh, that is until, <laughs> of course, Sigtrig offers up a marriage to his mother, Kormlod, into the bargain. Now, Sigurd clearly doesn't know Kormlod's reputation, but he's far more interested in the other part of the offer. If Brian falls, Sigurd can claim the title of King of Ireland. Mm. It's an offer he just can't refuse. Yeah, though his people do diligently try everything to prevent him from joining this unholy alliance. Uh-huh. Yeah, but there's no stopping that train. No, sadly, no. Uh, Sigtrick runs home then, reports the arrangement to Mother. Uh, she's pretty happy about everything, even the marriage arrangement to uh, Earl Sigurd. But she knows that in order to beat Brian, they'll need more support than what Sigurd can possibly offer alone. Which brings us to the Vikings, Ospak and Brothir. Cormlod mm-hmm. uh, sends Sigtrig to convince them to join the cause. He finds Brother near the Isle of Man and begins his sales pitch. Now, Brother is a, actually a pretty cool guy. Uh, he was a Christian who had been ordained as a deacon, but then he turned from the faith and began worshipping the old gods again. He was also said to be skilled in sorcery. Oh, and he's got invincible armor, too. Of course. And he's big and strong. And has such long hair, he has to tuck it under his belt. Okay, I get it. That's why you think he's cool, because you have the same hairstyle. What can I say? I admire good hair. You're pathetic. Uh, and so is Brother, for that matter. <laughs> uh, now, there's Aww. a significant... Oh, uh, I think there's a significant problem for Sigtrick here, because Brother isn't interested in fighting against Brian for nothing. Uh, he is a mm-hmm. Viking, after all. That's not a problem. Sigtrick uh, offers his mother and the Kingdom of <laughs> Ireland to him if he'll join. <laughs> Are you serious? Wait a minute. Didn't he just offer the same exact thing to Earl Sigurd? Eh, sure. <laughs> uh-huh. But he didn't intend to tell either of the presumed suitors about the other one. Uh-huh. If all goes well, one or both of them will die in the fight, and uh, where's the problem? You know what? You know, you put it that way, there's pretty good logic there. Uh, but there is another problem. Yeah. Uh, brother meets up with his brother, Osback, uh, who, of course, also intends to marry uh, Sigtrig's mother. Does he? Uh, I don't remember no. that part. <laughs> uh, it would be convenient. Uh, we're told that Osback was a pagan and a very wise man. Uh, when he hears what Brother has arranged, he's furious. He doesn't want to fight against Brian, who he respects too much as a good king. And at this point, the brothers have to divide up their forces and separate. Mm-hmm. And there's a really wonderful, uh, really strange chapter about Osback and Brother here. Uh, but in the interest of time, I think we're going to skip it. Oh, are you serious? I was yeah. looking forward to this. So we're not going to talk about the boiling blood raining from the sky and killing 20 of your brother's men. Nope, no time. We can't do it. What about the mysterious flying swords, the spears and axes that suddenly rise up from nowhere and attack brother's men the following night, killing another 20 men? Sorry, can't we can't do it. And I suppose we uh, we have no time to discuss the third night when ravens descend on brother's men with beaks and claws of iron pecking out their eyes and killing yet another 20 men. Yeah, I don't, I don't see how we can fit that in, John, really. Please. All right. Uh, but I want to at least let everybody know that Brother asks for his brother's advice and uh, learns that these attacks were portents of doom. Well, that's kind of obvious. They're kind of portents of doom. They're doomed themselves. But no, uh, we don't have time. You can't do that. Well, can we at least mention that Osback sees Brother preparing to attack his fleet, sneaks away along the coastline, and makes his way to the kingdom of King Brian, where he reveals Brother's alliance with Sigtrig and Earl Sigurth. I'm going to say again, no time, but I mean, I think everyone gets what's going on here. Uh, but go ahead. Why don't you tell them how Ospak converted to Christianity, was baptized by King Brian, and became one of his best followers? No, I don't think we have time. 
Ah. Uh, eh. <laughs> and uh, with the knowledge of the pending attack, uh, King Brian devises, get ready for this, a cunning plan. It's not that cunning. Well, he's going to gather his armies and get to Dublin the week before Palm Sunday. How's that? He had to do that anyways. But that leads <laughs> us to... Part 50. The Battle of Clontarf. So as Earl Sigurth prepares to sail his fleet from Orkney to Dublin, he pauses to remind Flossie that he had made a solemn vow to go on a pilgrimage to Rome. Oh, that. Uh-huh. Flossie really seems to want to go with Sigurth to Dublin and right. fight against King Brian, but Earl Sigurth won't allow it. The, the holy pilgrimage is far more important to him, which turns out to be good for Sigurd in the end, I think. No, 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 don't spoil anything. Uh, since he can't go, Flosi offers the Earl 15 of his own men to fight in his stead. How generous. Right, the Earl accepts that and the two men part ways. Flosi heads out to the Hebrides and begins to plan his pilgrimage as promised. Yeah, I think that's the key. He's he's really hanging out with uh, Earl Gilly yeah. in the Hebrides. Yeah. Um, now, meanwhile, Earl Sigurd sets sail. And among his companions are Thorstein, Hall of Sea the Sun, uh, Hraven, the Red, and a number of other men that you've probably never heard of. Uh, now, in Dublin, he meets up with the rest of the Allied forces, including Sigtryk and uh, Brother's men. Now, Brother uses sorcery to determine the outcome of the battle, and learns that if the battle were to be fought on Good Friday, Brian would be killed but have the victory. Hmm. If they fought before Good Friday, all those against Brian would be killed. Okay, so wait a minute. Either way, this doesn't sound good for the Unholy Alliance. Yeah, no, and and Brother recognizes this. He urges Sigurth and Sigtrig not to fight before Good Friday. <laughs> In other words, he's hoping to save his own neck. Yeah, exactly right. Uh-huh. Uh, and so the battle is set for Good Friday. Ah, that's a good day for a fight, if you ask me. Well, that's what the auguries say, but here's the thing. King Brian doesn't want to fight on Good Friday. He's a good Christian. Nah, he doesn't have a choice. He has a shield wall built up around him, and he puts his army in front. Ulf Hrada, Brian's brother, commands the forces facing brother. Osbach and Brian's sons are in charge of the forces facing Sigtrig. Uh, now, despite Brian's misgivings about fighting on Good Friday, he does seem ready to go, and like I said, he doesn't have yeah, much of a choice. Right? He is. Uh, so the fighting starts, and it's quite a brawl. Uh, it's mm-hmm. incredible. Uh, brother is a force to be reckoned with, killing everyone in his path. Yeah. How do we count that for best bloodshed, killing everyone in his path? Yeah, I think we don't. Uh, see, that's not fair. He kills everyone in his path. That's a lot of guys. Well, Brother is pushing through Brian's army like a hot knife through butter until he comes up against Ulf Rather. Mm-hmm. Three times Ulf thrusts his spear at Brother, and three times Brother is knocked to the ground. After the third time... He picks himself up and runs into the woods. So much for brother's bravery, huh? <laughs> now, Earl Sigurd uh, was set against uh, Kerthiaflad, uh, Brian's foster son, in the center of the field. Now, Kerthiaflad uh, slices his way through Sigurd's forces right up to the banner bearer and cuts him down. Yeah, this is a great part. Yeah. Uh, Earl Sigurd gets another man to pick up the banner, but Kerthiaflad cuts him down, too, almost immediately. Yeah, and then Sigurd uh, turns to Thorstein Hall of Seethe's son and uh, asks him to grab the fallen banner, but just as Thorstein's reaching for it, Amundi the White, one of the other uh, Vikings, shouts, Don't carry that banner, Thorstein. Everyone who picks it up gets killed. <laughs> right, so Thorstein just keeps moving. <laughs> You're right. Uh, Sigurd then asks Robin the Red to pick it up, but Robin just looks at him and says, Carry that devil of yours by yourself. <laughs> 
which uh, Sigurd, <laughs> left with nothing else, does. He stuffs the banner in his clothes and carries on with the battle. And how does he do? Uh, not well. Uh, he's <laughs> killed shortly after picking up the banner. Well, see, he should have listened. Uh, but hey, this uh, this clears the way for Brother to claim Cormillet and the Kingdom of Ireland, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so on sure. to Ulsback. Uh, he also cuts his way through the opposing forces. There's a lot of cutting through forces. Um, and uh-huh. he makes his way straight toward Sigtrick. Uh, and by this point, he's badly wounded, but he's still fighting. And uh, both of Brian's eldest sons, the best sons that he's got, are they're already uh, dead. Now, even though he's wounded, Osbach is still making his presence felt. And when Sigtrick sees him coming, he flees. The whole army follows after, effectively giving the battle to Brian's forces. Yes, and this wow. is all this. This is that point in the saga when suddenly I'm reminded forcibly of the Aeneid. Ah, right, we have this these battles where it's just one person after another running through the opposing forces, sort of mm-hmm. running with their swords out and lopping off heads as they go. It's all very easy from this vantage yes, point. Yes, yeah. Well, while they're running, Thorstein Hall of Sea the Sun uh, stops to tie his shoe for some reason. Wait, what? It's an odd moment to worry about a shoelace. Yeah, I mean, you're being chased by an army. You're supposed to be retreating, yeah. and you're like, oh, my shoe's untied. But uh, you know, listen, you want him to trip and fall? I mean, he's carrying sharp <laughs> weapons. You know it's dangerous sure. uh, running with a pencil. You remember that from elementary school. So imagine <laughs> you, you're carrying a sword. Safety first, John. Brian's foster son, Keltifiad, sees him and stops to ask why he isn't running. And Thorsten replies, because I can't reach home tonight. My home's all the way out in Iceland. And Kerthiflod is uh, apparently tickled by this exchange because he chooses not to kill him. Just tie your shoe and on with you. Go, go, yeah, go. There you go. Now, among the other Icelanders fleeing is uh, Robin the Red, one of Flosi's men. He runs all the way to a river, but pauses before attempting to cross. He thinks he sees hell down below him and devils reaching out, trying to grab him and drag him down. But Robin is a quick thinker. He says, this dog of yours has run twice to Rome, Apostle Peter. And would run a third time if you let him. And the devils let him go, and he rushes across the river. See, that's, I mean, what a cool moment in the saga. (laughs) And it's a good example. The whole Christianity thing really does work for some men, doesn't it? I mean, sure. Of course, they also weren't having visions about being dragged into hell by demons before they became Uh, Christians. You You give a little, you take a little. Sure. Uh, But even though everyone else is running away, we can't forget about Brother. Didn't he run into the woods, though? I thought we were done with him. Yeah, no, but he's watching and he's appalled at what he's seeing. So he rushes out of the woods and straight at Brian's forces. At this point, the shield wall is pretty thin because everyone's off chasing easy prey. Brother manages to break through and takes a mighty swing at the king. Brian's son, Tog, raises an arm to block the blow, but the sword slices through Tog's arm and through Brian's neck as well. Mm -hmm. As the saga tells us, the king's blood fell on the stump of the boy's arm. And the stump healed at once. It's a miracle. It is. Brian. So is another miracle. Do not tempt him, shallow ones. <laughs> so anyway, Brother shouts out that he's killed Brian. Now, victory is within their grasp at last. Uh, it depends on who there is. And it really uh, isn't. Because the word spreads quickly of Brian's death and all the best uh-huh. men return now and form a circle around Brother, trapping him. Uh, and then he's taken prisoner. So take that, yeah, Brother. No, I- I know everyone in our audience likes a good best bloodshed moment, but if you're at all squeamish, uh, you might want to skip ahead about 30 seconds or a minute at this point. Yeah, go ahead, everyone. We'll wait for you. And no, we can't wait. That's that's the 30 seconds wasted, uh, and they'll hear what happens to Bro there. That's a good point. Fine. Let's, let's get into it. 
Okay, so Ulf, and again, that's Brian's brother, takes Brother to an oak tree and slices his stomach open. Mm. Then he pulls out part of his intestines and forces him to walk around the tree, unwinding the rest of the intestines slowly out of him as he goes. And Brother doesn't die until all of his intestines had been pulled out. Mm. That's extremely gruesome, but... uh... Now, uh, assuming that all our listeners are back, I, 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 I'm i curious. How many times around the tree do you think it would take to get all of the intestines out? <laughs> Wait, you waited for the Squeamish listeners to come back before you asked that? Well, you know, they, they you didn't have to witness the event, but now we're talking also, about an interesting problem. Also, why is that the thing you're wondering? Well, I, I, I mean, okay, listen. Just, uh, I'm curious. It depends on the circumference of the tree to some extent, doesn't it? Oh, boy. Uh, so let's assume the oak tree's a bit older, has a circumference of, and I looked this up a little bit, let's say 45 inches. It's a, it's not oh, too God. old, but it's it's an older tree. 45-inch circumference. Uh, I can see already. I can see math on the horizon. Oh, yes. Uh, okay. Well, I think I can help you here. Now, the average You're length serious. of these small intestines in an adult human is about 20 feet, and the large intestine is about 5 feet. <laughs> So we're we're looking to spread about twenty five feet of intestine around that tree. Okay. So before I go further, why do you know that? Um, I actually had abdominal surgery a year and a half ago. Did they unwind a, your intestines for you? No, they did not. But uh, you know, I wanted to find out what was in there. All right. Well, okay. So let's assume then he's not walking in a tight circle around the tree. Let's be fair. Sure. Yeah. No, we have to give him at least fifty five inches around the circle. Good. Okay. So you ready for some Andy math? I'm going to try this. Yeah. Uh, that's the only reason I'm entertaining this nonsense. <laughs> All right. So if he's got to travel around a <laughs> circumference of about 55 inches, that's 4.5 feet per turn. Okay. Uh, All right. He's got 25 feet of intestine to play with here. So that's 25 divided by 12, right? No. no. Uh, okay. Wait, wait, wait. It's 25 times 12. We got to go up. Okay. That's better. Yes. All right. Okay. So that's um, – hold on a second. Uh, three, 300 inches. Wow, yes. wow. Are you serious? He's got 300 inches of intestine to work with? Yes. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> now 300 divided by 50. At least he might, you know, he might also be a large man. That's <laughs> true. Who knows what a Viking's intestines were. Um, but uh, 300 divided by 50. Aside from clogged with meat. <laughs> and worms from what I've read. <laughs> oh. All right. Back to the math problem here. We've got 300 divided by 55 gives us about... Okay, five, five, five and a half times around the tree. Uh huh. Wow, that's a lot of turns around the old oak tree. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I don't know whether be more impressed that you got the math right or that you managed to work a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree joke in. You uh, know, did I get the math right? Is that tie reasonable? a bloody intestine around the old oak tree? <laughs> Is it three long years? Uh, <laughs> Can we uh, finish Klontarf now? Yeah, sure. Yeah, but, uh, you know, you know, any of you teachers out there, if you're looking, if you're a math teacher, you want to build a word problem for your students. Uh, yeah, that's feel free to borrow one. from us. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah, um, it might make you mad. But I, in the interest of time, since we did that long math word problem, uh, I think we need to skip the spinners poems if we can. Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, we should at least describe the scene for everyone. All right, I'll settle for that, yeah. So, on the same morning as the battle, it's reported that a man named Dorin and Kathnis spotted 12 strange figures entering the room for women. When he crept up to the window and looked inside, that's, this is a little creepy, isn't it? Uh, yeah. 
When he when he crept up to the window and looked inside like the creep that he was, he saw women gathered around a loom. And the saga tells us men's heads were used for weights, men's intestines for the weft and warp, a sword for the sword beater, and an arrow for the pin beater. And then the women spoke. And and then they share three plus pages of verse that's pretty good, actually. Um, and it's filled with battle imagery mm-hmm. and other horrors. Um, but we're going to move forward. Uh, a similar event happened, uh, it is told, to uh, Bron Nastason, uh in the Faroe Islands. So this isn't right. happening all over the place. Now, and back at Svinefell in Iceland, blood appears on the priest's cope and he had to take it off. And then the priest at Thvalta River uh, thought he saw a deep sea next to the altar and horrible images swirling inside it. Really threw him off his sermon. <laughs> As it would. Uh, the author shares several more reports of horrific things happening on this Good Friday that Brian fell. Mm, I feel like Brian's really important. Well, you're getting that impression, are you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the author shares several more reports of horrific things happening on this same Good Friday that Brian fell. Earl Gilly, the brother-in-law of Earl Sigurth, was hosting Flosie. And he dreamt that a man named Herfin came to him from Ireland and spoke the following poem. When swords screamed in Ireland and men struggled, I was there. Many a weapon was shattered when shields met in battle. The attack, I hear, was daring. Sigurd died in the din of helmets after making bloody wounds. Brian fell too, but won. It's it's an ominous end to the Klontarf episode. All these yeah, visions. Uh, Earl Gilly reports the dream to Flossie, and they expect the worst. A week later, Hraven the Red caught up to them, and he reports the deaths of King Brian, Earl Sigurd, brother, and all of Flossie's men, except for Thorstein Hall of Sithison. Well, he's got a saga that he's got to participate in. Well, there you in, go. You know? uh, but uh, naturally, Flossie's heartbroken hearing this news. And now... After hanging out for however long with Earl Sigurd and then with Earl Gilly in the Hebrides, he uh-huh. finally sets out for real this time on his pilgrimage to Rome. Yeah, except he doesn't really. Uh, the Earl gives him a ship and some silver, and then everybody sails off to Wales and stays there for a while. Oh, come on. Part 51. The end. It's the end. Oh, my goodness. You know what, John? If you had told me at the very beginning that we would hit part 51, I would have said, you know, that's probably likely, but I would prefer not to. Uh-huh. So, at this point, with the massive windfall of all those dead burners at Klontarf, Kari's nearly completed his world revenge tour. Yeah, without lifting a finger. Yeah. Yeah, I, I still have some questions about how we're supposed to make sense of all that, though. Uh, but for now... Uh, we're down to just a handful of burners left alive. And That's I think right. We can handle them pretty quickly. And uh, and Kari swore not to harm Kettle of Mork, so he's off the list. So who else is left? Well, you got Flosi, but like we said, he's off in Wales, mm-hmm. waiting to uh, preparing to diligently. Yes, to, uh, slowly head to Rome. but carefully. Uh, and Robin the Red is out there, mm-hmm. and uh, also there's a uh, Cole Thorsonson who is uh, with him. Ah, uh, yes, they're all out there, but they're all together, and Kari's luck holds. As he and David and Colbin are sailing around the Scottish fjords, they happen to meet with some Hebridians on their way north. And they have news for Kari. News about whales? Yes, indeed. Kari and his friends immediately make for the Welsh coast in the hope of finally catching up with the last group of burners. Meanwhile, Flosi's planning his pilgrimage to Rome, still. Sure he is. Uh, but 
Cole Thorstenson has met a rich Welsh widow and is planning to settle down. <laughs> That's so nice. Good for him. Uh, we haven't had a lot of peaceful endings for people caught up in this story yet. Uh, yeah, except do. that Cole's one of the most obnoxious of the burners. And he and Kari have been on a collision course for a long, long time. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, we didn't bring it up at the time, but uh, Cole was first introduced way back in Chapter 96, which doesn't sound like way back, but it yeah. is for us. Uh, um, five and, episodes ago. Yeah. And there it was said that he and Kari would one day meet in Wales. Mm. And there's a little footnote in the text about that. Yeah. And uh, remember, a little while back, Kari said that he was still hoping to kill Gunnar Lambeson and Cole Thorstenson to complete his revenge. That's right. And presumably Flossie as well, but we'll get to that. Yeah. So uh, what you're saying here is there's no happy ending for Cole and this widow. Yeah, not exactly. Uh, see, he's off in town near Port to buy some silver, and he's busy counting out a payment to the shopkeep. The shopkeep, eh? Well, the merchant, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so as we said, Kari's luck holds, and he and his friends have come ashore at this very town. Ah, bit of a coincidence. Bit but, uh you know, we've seen this already in this episode and all over the sagas. Yeah, the elasticity of space outside of Iceland. Um, yeah, absolutely. The sagas are so precise about space in Iceland that it's easy to forget that sometimes they are wrong about places and relative distances. Yeah. But once the narrative leaves Iceland, most sagas get much more vague about distances anyway. And uh, you get more of this sort of thing happening. Uh-huh. Um, and, and with Kari just happening to wander down the street of one of those many oceanside towns of Wales, just as his sworn enemy is conducting business there. Sure. Yeah. He's in, he's in Walesburg, the happening capital <laughs> of Wales land. Uh, geographical details, not as vital outside of Iceland. I think. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Cole is counting out a payment to a merchant. When Kari sees him across the market, he rushes at him with sword drawn, and I'll just let the saga tell this one. Kari struck at Cole's neck, but Cole was still counting out silver. Eight, nine, and his head uttered the number ten as it flew from his body. Now, that's (laughs) what we come to the sagas for. A very nice kill by Kari. Uh, That's got to be best bloodshed material right there, doesn't it? I mean, how do you top a severed head still counting its change? Uh, you walk around a tree 5.5 <laughs> times, something like that, with your intestine? I don't know. Something like that. But, yeah. Um, yeah, but w- we've done 11 of these, and there's been at least one strong contender in every episode of Nyal Saga. Yeah, and several on this one. Uh, yeah. Oh, Kari then announces the killing to anyone who'll listen. Tell Flossy that Kari Salmundersen has killed Cole Thorstenson. I give notice that I did the killing. Now, it's nice that Kari's still following the proper formula for a killing, but... I assume he has to know that Wales doesn't follow Icelandic law. Ah, sure. But it's not the kind of thing you want to get out of practice on. You've got to be consistent. Uh, Besides, this is also a pretty effective way of taunting Flossy and letting everyone know. Right. That's true. Uh, But Flossy doesn't rise to it. He gives Cole a rich burial, but he never says a word against Kari. And then he goes ahead and actually leaves on his pilgrimage to Rome. Hold on. You're saying he leaves on his pilgrimage to Rome. Which he left for uh, almost a year ago, I'm thinking. I don't know well, how long time has passed. It takes a while to prepare <laughs> yourself for a, for a trip like that. A lot of hanging out in other people's uh-huh. rich courts, eating a lot of berries sure. and things like that. Yeah, Getting news uh, about so, friends of yours dying in Klontarf. Yeah, right. But there's, uh, there's no confrontation with Kari. No showdown at the Cardigan Corral? Nope. Uh, in fact, hmm. the author doesn't really address the idea at all. 
Uh, Flosi leaves directly after Cole's funeral and doesn't stop until he reaches the Vatican. Well, that's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Almost like Flosi knows that everyone deserves what they're getting here. Yeah. Uh, it's it's one of the less narratively logical moments in this saga. I mean, Kari and Flosi both seem weirdly casual about being so close by one another. But this trip to Rome is interesting. Kari's going to make his own pilgrimage to Rome a year later, traveling by a different route, hopefully. Mm. Uh, and both of them undertake the trip as a way of kind of atoning for their killing. So there's something more at work at this saga. Right. So does that mean that Kari has finally killed enough men? Is he done? Well, we'll see about that in a minute. Uh, there is not a lot of detail about the pilgrimages, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are there is some question, actually, as to whether guys who recently converted um, only 14 years ago would actually undertake a pilgrimage. But uh, we're told that Flosi's received with great honor in Rome and everywhere else he goes on the on the trip. And in fact, in Rome, he's absolved of all his crimes by the Pope himself taking time out of his day to meet with this yeah. guy. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is stretching credulity to the breaking point. But as we said, the saga really goes out of its way to rehabilitate Flosi in these later chapters. Yeah, I think it's been working in that way for a mm-hmm. while now. And even if we're not or you're not buying into it, this sort of thing fits that agenda. Well, Flosi's manifesting an almost ostentatiously Christian spirit at this point. He's forgiven Kari, and he long ago ran out of cheeks to turn. Now he's being judged praiseworthy by the Pope. Mm-hmm. But you, uh, it sounds like you're still not accepting this. The, I mean, doesn't the narrative at this point almost demand that we take Flosi at face value? I feel like, you know, I've been trying to mm-hmm. suggest throughout this whole episode that uh, that's what we're being set up for. Right. No, I still say the author isn't all that keen on Flosi. Uh, but this isn't really about Flosi. It's about Christianity. At the end of this epic story, the author's looking forward toward a new age, right? a Christian Iceland where things aren't necessarily better, but they are different. Mm. Yeah, this isn't a joyous dawn of a new day type of thing, is no, it? No, no. I mean, there's been a lot lost in this story, including the power of the all thing as a sacrosanct place. Inst- oh, yeah. Instead, we have a new religion, one that the author presents as better than what came before, but the price of change has been high. Yeah, and when once both Kari and Flosi have been to Rome and back, the fire's out of their feud. Mm-hmm. Kari says goodbye to David and Colbeen, and then he returns to Iceland. Yep. Uh, he is delayed setting out, and an early winter storm wrecks the ship off the coast. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around. And this, by the yeah. way, is why you don't sail in winter, kids. Yeah. Now, fortunately, Kari and his men manage to swim ashore, but the storm is getting worse, and there's only one farm nearby that might offer shelter. Of course there is. And uh, I don't think everyone will be surprised to hear that it's Svinefell, uh-huh. home of Flossie Thordeson. Yeah, now at this point, these two are really the only people left in the saga that we're still focused on. Yeah, and they're also the only two people that were at the burning. Everyone right. else is either burned in the uh, the house right. or killed by Kari. So, it's kind of interesting that they bring these two men together at the end of the saga. Mm-hmm. And the final con- confrontation... Uh, has been coming for a long, long time. Uh, but again, they've they've been forgiven their sins. And now the yeah. question is, does does their Christianity and their absolution outweigh their desire to finish each other off? Well, that's what Kari wants to know. He tells his men that he will put Flosi's magnanimity to the test. And he leads his men through the snow and darkness to Flosi's front door. Oh, he's so bold. Mm-hmm. And uh, Flosi does see Kari outside. And he runs to the door. And death! And- Death! Axes fly as the two men, he sees one another and... No. Blood! Locked in a fatal embrace. Daggers stabbing wildly. 
No. Hurtful words with a series of snippy comments. I, no. I, oh, no. 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 It's, no. It's not that kind of story. No, it's not that kind of story. <laughs> yeah. Aflosi grabs Kari, kisses him on the cheek, and brings him in to warm himself by the fire. <laughs> he insists on Kari spending Such the winter with him, and Kari agrees. And after all that, they're reconciled and best of friends. It's so hard to make sense of. Uh, but as is we it? said, right? I, well, I think this is a story that moves Christianity front and center in its later chapters. And yes. Here we see Christian forgiveness doing what both law and feud couldn't, bringing exactly. about peace. Exactly. Good. I'm glad you said that. Uh, of course, it is easier. I think, you know, one of the things to remind yourself of uh-huh. is it's easier to have peace if everyone else is dead. Christ right. done that job. <laughs> that is true. Uh, and really, almost everyone is dead. Uh, yeah. At this point, Kari also learns that his wife, Helga Njal's daughter, has died in his absence. Yeah, we never hear much from Helga in this saga. Um, we, we know that Kari made arrangements with Thorgir for Helga and their daughters to be taken care of financially. But otherwise, there's really not much of Helga in the saga. Yeah. Um, and her death occurs out of frame and it's just reported news. So don't plan on counting that in the death, right. uh, the body count. Now, there's, there's probably a very good novel to be written from the point of view of Njal's daughters. I mean, imagine this mm. story from their point of view. Right? These two women married to Kari and Kettle of Mork. Uh, sadly, while we await that, there isn't much to be said about Helga right now. Uh, we can speculate whether her death was due to grief over her lost uh, family or stress or just illness. But whatever it is, Kari's a widower with three daughters to raise. Yeah, but not for long. Oh, God, they're going to die too? I mean, no. At some point, this is just cruel. No, 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 John. Uh, Flossy, uh being the magnanimous man that he is, is going to uh, arrange a marriage. Kari's going to marry one of Flossie's nieces. Well, I mean, this isn't entirely surprising. It's it's fairly typical to cement a reconciliation through a peace weaving or a marriage alliance. Yeah. We've seen it before. But uh, I couldn't help but notice, Andy, you didn't mention which niece of Flossie's we're talking about here. Yeah, I'd rather not. <laughs> it's kind of a problem. I mean, I didn't want to mention it, but Kari's going to marry uh, a familiar face. It's mm-hmm. Hildegund Sarkada daughter. Uh, the widow of Holskold Thrainson. The uh, this is this is in case some listeners don't remember, and really at this point, who could blame you? Uh, but this is the same Hildegun whose husband Kari helped to kill. Yeah, uh, he put a knife in yeah. his back. So uh, she's also the same Hildegun who forced Flosi to take responsibility for avenging Holskold's death by throwing Holskold's bloody cloak over him with all the uh, the the gore uh, and the blood dried up pouring down, over his yeah. shoulders. Yeah, it's the same Hildegun who pushed for violent resolution instead of legal peace, which yes. may have forced Flosi into rejecting the peace deal that would have saved Njal's family. Yeah, so uh, this is kind of a problem. Yeah, How do we make sense of all this? Well, it's not easy. Uh, Ursula Dronka puts, points out that the author very carefully does not remind us of any of that, which makes it feel slightly less egregious as a violation of narrative logic. Yeah. And for what it's worth, she also argues that there's no evidence that Hildegun's marriage to Hoskold was ever a happy one. Well, that's true. Uh, remember, she refused to marry Hoskold at first, uh, Hildegun, not Ursula, uh, because mm-hmm. he wasn't a chieftain. <laughs> Uh, now I think about it, that actually means that she's also indirectly responsible for Njal manipulating the creation of the Fifth Court. Yeah, and therefore the jealousy that led the Njalsons to kill her husband. Wow. Hildegun, Hildegun turns out to be kind of an inverse Holgerth. Hmm. Interesting. 
right? I mean, she starts off by asserting her right to approve her own marriage, causes a mm-hmm. great deal of strife, arranges for her husband to be avenged, and then achieves peace through her marriage to a former enemy. Her story is Holgerth's story from the beginning of the saga, but reoriented toward resolution of conflict rather than its creation. Hmm. Yeah, we, we said before, Njal Saga is concerned with the perspective of women, and, and this but this one's a sneaky one that's kind of tucked in at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's how the saga ends. Uh, Flosi lives to be an old man, um, and he's lost at sea after a visit to Norway. And Kari and Hildegun have three sons named Starkov, Thord, and unbelievably, Flosi. Ah, Flosi. Uh, well, uh, Kari's first son is named for his father-in-law. Right. Uh, the second's named for his lost son, Thord. And, and his third one's named for the man who killed his lost son, Thord. Yeah. yeah. It's really a weird ending to the saga. It is. Uh, but I think the most important point there is that it's an ending. This is the end of Njal's saga. An ending to Njal. We're done at last. Uh, hang on, though. We're actually not done. Oh, hell. <laughs> uh, we still have a judgment episode to do, don't we? We do indeed, but uh, we do want to ask for our listeners' help because this is a very long saga and we can't possibly... So, so long. Yeah. There's so much going on in it. Obviously, the choice of which stories should be part of the judgment section is going to have to be uh, fairly arbitrary. And we can't have 20 options for notable witticism or best bloodshed. Oh, please, no. Yeah. So, we want to invite you all to send your suggestions for which brawls, which funny lines, which nicknames, which nominees for outlawry, potential thingmen that you'd like to have us discuss in the judgment episode. Uh, we'll be recording it around the end of March, so just, you know, pretty soon, to be honest with you. So send in yeah. your ideas before then. And how would they do that? I think they all know because they're regular listeners. But if they need a reminder, go ahead and drop us a line through Twitter, where we are at SagaThingPod, or on Facebook, where we are SagaThingPodcast. And if you need more space for your ideas, which uh, clearly John and I do, uh, go ahead and write us an email. <laughs> email? What's Email. Uh, our email address is sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can start your own podcast in which you talk about the sagas of the Icelanders and see how many you can finish in the time it's taken us to get through Njal Saga. Well, good luck with that. Uh, it's been a journey, everyone. <laughs> and if you have enjoyed any part of that journey, uh, we'd like to take this opportunity to first thank you for listening. Without your support, we probably would have moved much slower. Uh, there's kind of a feeling of responsibility to you all that helped us get through it. But uh, we'd also like to ask you to head over to iTunes, even if you don't listen through iTunes, and take a moment to review the podcast. We don't ask that Indeed. often, but uh, we'd appreciate the effort as a thank you for our effort. That's it for now. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will be back very soon with judgments and the absolutely definitively final, hopefully, episode on Y'all Saga. <laughs> Bye for now. Kari is a man of principle. Besides, I don't he think is. he'd ever hear the end of it. Don't end be it. hasty. If he, if he went to the Entmoot and looked for the Entwives...
having drunk the ent juice. <laughs> I think the ents don't really spend a lot of time naming things. Uh, Car- <laughs> Come with me to Ent City, home of the Entlings. <laughs> Where you'll find yourself a good Ent burger and some Ent ale at a good Ent price for a few Ent dollars. <laughs> and some Ent cents. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, stupid ends. <laughs> <laughs>